This morning, as we come to the time of God's word, I'd invite you to consider 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. Reading from the English Standard Translation. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Our God and Father, again, we come and recognize, as Scripture would teach us, uh, that the things contained in Scripture, all that is written, uh, first of all, is breathed out by you. And therefore, we know it to be surely your word, your voice to us, the written word, the very voice of Christ to us, the scriptures that uh, provide us with uh, our doctrine, our teaching, but also the scriptures which would correct and reprove us, the scriptures that train us in righteousness so that we can be adequately and fully equipped uh, for every good work, for every good service that you would call us to as believers. And so we would pray, give us humble hearts to sit underneath your word today. And I pray as a preacher and a teacher that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord, so that truly in the preaching of the word, uh, it would be the voice of Christ, the truth of Christ that would be heard. We need that, Father. We need your spirit guiding and guaranteeing that, Father. Christ has called us to a holy calling to be salt and light to this world. This world deeply needs the truth of Christ. Enable us to be equipped and edified by your word to do all that Christ has called us to do. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several ways that we might uh, title this section. Uh, I chose Godly Leadership primarily because it's a short and succinct title. But other ways occurred to me. We could call it a profile of pastoral shepherding, pastoral leadership. Or we might be thinking about Paul's relationship to Timothy. And so we might think of a spiritual father to a spiritual son on being a shepherd leader. 
that Paul to Timothy relationship could also suggest something like this, a veteran shepherd to a rookie on how to lead the people of God. Now, then our Bible translations also suggest titles in terms of section headings. So the New American Standard for this section says, a good minister's discipline. Uh, one commentator put it this way, Timothy's performance of his task. But an older commentary actually uses a summary as the heading for this section. It goes this way, stirring exhortations for Timothy to genuine steadfastness in his Christian calling and to continuous growth in it. What is common to all of these ways of uh, stating this passage, summing up this passage is this, shepherding the church is a very serious matter. And those who are called must take the task seriously. That is really what these 11 verses are all about. But we also have the larger context of how Christ has set forth the purpose for his church. And that purpose is connected with truth, the truth about God, a God who is holy and righteous, yet a God who's full of goodness and love. It's about the truth of mankind. Human beings are the crown of God's creation, but now fallen, bound for hell. Therefore, in having the great need for salvation. Also the truth about Christ, the Son of God, whose death is the only atonement for sin whose faith in him is the only path of redemption. These are the utmost serious truths. And the church's purpose in this world is to be the witness and to be the support and the voice that makes this truth known. Now, if we put these thoughts together, we can express more or less in one sentence what this passage is all about. Too much to make this the title of this passage in terms of a sermon title, but nevertheless expressing the, the gist of what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across. We can say it this way. Because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, all shepherd teachers must give themselves over to their calling with exceptional diligence. Those who are shepherd and teachers of the church need to remember that all they do is in the context of the purpose of the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is so serious that they have to give their calling exceptional diligence. Now, what we find in these verses can be organized under two major ideas to start with, the shepherd's universal calling and primary duty, that would be the first, and then it goes on to speak of the shepherd's particular duties and specific practices, but as we've looked at those two, we can actually consider a third point, and that would be the shepherd's mission and ministry purpose. And that's how I want us to proceed. The shepherd's universal calling, the shepherd's particular duties, and then the shepherd's mission and ministry purpose. Now, first of all, then, looking at this universal calling and primary duty of a shepherd, what we notice in the first place is that Timothy as a shepherd leader, has a general calling to the brothers, to the local body of Christ, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Try to keep that identification always in your mind. The church 
the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So his primary duty is to equip the church to be that very thing. So when Paul says to Timothy uh, that he is to put these things before the brothers, it is the idea of equipping the church in the truth, which is the church, which is to teach the church what Paul has already been writing in his letters to Timothy, which is going to be the entire content of Paul's teaching, plus everything else that pertains to sound doctrine, the doctrine that Timothy has been following. So then look at verse six, two more phrases, trained in the words of the faith, and along with this then, the doctrine, the good doctrine you have followed. Timothy has been trained, but the word here means essentially nourished. In the ancient world, the idea was that true education, true learning was nourishment to the soul, to the inward aspect of a person. So as the body needed to be nourished physically, so the soul needed to be nourished spiritually, and learning the truth was that which would nourish the soul. Now that's totally in accord with the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, totally in accord with what Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was Timothy's primary duty with respect to his universal calling, to be himself a man who was nourished by the words of the faith, the truth of the word of God, the good doctrine of his upbringing and discipleship, so that he would be qualified to equip the body of Christ in the truth. Paul then goes on to give three further aspects of the nature of this universal calling of every shepherd teacher. He's going to speak to the servanthood to the church, service to the one hope, service in total commitment. So again in verse 6, uh, there Paul speaks of the calling to servanthood because he speaks of Timothy as being a good servant. Every Christian, of course, has a calling to be a servant of Christ. That is because every believer is called to live for Christ, to live for Jesus, to serve him in his kingdom. All of us are called to do positively good things for the people of this world as if we were doing them unto Christ, and especially serving those who are members of the body of Christ. It's like Paul says in Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. But for Timothy, and for anyone who's called to be a shepherd teacher, there is a heightened meaning and a heightened emphasis. This calling to servanthood to the church to do good is not just when you have opportunity. Rather, this is to be his life. It's to be his very life calling. Now, let me say what it isn't because sometimes men will aspire to the ministry who might have one or the other of these shortcomings. There are men who love, deeply love the truth of God's word, but don't like people all that much. And then you have men who love people, love people tremendously, but they really don't care to study the word of God all that deeply. Now, the truth is, to be a good shepherd of Christ Jesus, to be a good shepherd serving the church, there has to be a deep love for both. 
There must be both a care for the truth of God's word and a care that the people of God would receive the truth of God's word faithfully. That is, the goal of our instruction is love, as Paul has already said to Timothy. Truth, the conveyance of truth, with the goal that it would be the most loving thing that we can do for others in the body of Christ. So Timothy can only be a good servant if he loves the truth enough to preach it truthfully, even when it isn't going to tickle anyone's ears. Uh, Timothy can only be a good servant if he loves the people enough to teach them the word that will instruct them in the truth. But that word is also a word that will correct and rebuke and even command some of them to stop their bad teaching of bad doctrine. A good servant must be someone who loves the truth and loves the people of God as a life calling. Now, a second aspect of this universal calling we can find in verses 9 and 10. It is that the calling is to the one and only hope, the only hope that God has given to a fallen human race, and that is the gospel. Paul puts it into one of those faithful sayings again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul is connecting Timothy's calling to this one hope. This faithful saying is another way of expressing the salvation gospel. God is the only God, the true and living God. But this is a counter narrative to what was common within the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, people were constantly encouraged to say and to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And they were often required to say that Caesar was the savior of the world. So in contrast, uh, Timothy's calling must deny these claims of Caesar and affirm in their place the one and true hope, the living God, uh, the true savior of the world. But that hope is only real and realized in those who place their faith and trust in him. Then Paul says further, this calling is one of toil and striving. In other words, shepherd teachers like Timothy must give centrality of effort to the gospel, to labor and strive to make the gospel known. Then there's a third aspect of this universal calling, total commitment. We see this described for us in verses 15 and 16. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Persist in this for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Constant practice of these things, total immersion, complete absorption, persistence, always showing clear spiritual progress, guarding your life, guarding your teaching, giving all of this in a total commitment. That is how Timothy's going to save himself from apostasy from falling away from truth, from falling away from sound doctrine. But likewise, uh, for those who are listening to Timothy, this is how he's going to save them from apostasy, from departing from the truth. If Timothy will be totally committed to speak only the voice of Christ, only the voice of truth, only the words of the God-breathed scriptures, 
then Timothy can expect the flock to be faithful to the truth. He can depend on a promise that Jesus made about the voice of his own word. In John chapter 10, 27 to 28, Jesus spoke these words. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So if Timothy will faithfully speak with the voice of Christ, the true sheep will listen and they will hear Timothy in Timothy's preaching, the voice of Christ, and they will follow faithfully, possessing eternal life. And it is in this manner that Timothy will save his listeners from falling away. Then we move on to the second major consideration that we find in this passage, moving from the universal to the particular. We have the shepherd's particular duties and specific practices. Now, Paul has a number of concrete applications to Timothy as a shepherd. These applications are like boundary lines. Now, they set out the right kind of ministry and minister, the minister's conduct. They are actually given to us as a list of do's and don'ts. And there's three of each. So we can picture them then as the boundary lines that we ought not to cross and the boundary lines within which the shepherd teacher ought to minister. So the first set in terms of what Timothy is not to do and what Timothy is to do begins with verse seven. Paul puts the first don't this way. Don't waste your time. Note irreverent and silly myths in verse seven. Have nothing to do with them, Paul says. Don't waste your time. Uh, in the ancient world, the myths were many. There were a multitude of Jewish and Roman myths, lots of pagan myths. And Paul says to Timothy, don't go there. Don't waste your time. Here's why. I can tell you from lots of personal experience, pastors get this kind of a question. Have you heard this? Have you read this? Have you seen this? We get variations on that question quite a bit. But often the stuff that we're asked, whether we've seen or heard or read, fall into the very category that Paul describes as irreverent or silly. It's, this stuff is very, very common in the religious world, even in the Bible-believing world. And Paul says to Timothy, don't waste your time. Now, you're probably wanting a good example of this, so let me give you one. Uh, just Friday, in uh, Julie's Facebook feed, she received a link to a video from a Christian. It was about the coronavirus. It was about the end times. Uh, it was about the pandemic being a certain sign that the rapture was going to happen soon. It was about how to spot the coming mark of the beast. I know all this because I gave the video 15 minutes of time. Now, did you know that Corona is numerically 666? Well, think about it. The word Corona has six letters. And then if you take the spelling of Corona and recognize that in the alphabet, C is the third letter, so it has the value of three. And the O is the 15th letter, so it has the value of 15. And R is 18. And O again is 15. And N is 14. And A is one. 
And if you add up all of those numbers, you get 66. So you have six representing the number of letters in the word Corona, and then you have 66 as the total of all those numbers put together. And there you have it. You've got the number of the beast. Does this have any significance? Or is this silly? Now let me tell you something direct. The limited amount of actual Bible numerics, and that's what this is, a, a kind of Bible numeric. The, the, the actual limited amount of, of true Bible numerics in the New Testament only play out through the Greek or possibly the Latin languages. Nothing, let me repeat this, nothing in the book of Revelation can ever depend upon the English translation of it, especially Bible numerics. That is why this is silly, but it's even tragically silly because this is what this Bible-believing evangelical pastor was going to be teaching his people on Sunday. Let me give you some application here. Don't pray that your pastor will have time to read this or that book. Pray that instead he will never waste his time on what is silly or worthless. And then Paul goes on to give the positive duty what Timothy is supposed to do. This is in the, re the, the rest of verse 7 into verse 8. Timothy is to exercise himself toward the attainment of spiritual fitness and godliness. Paul puts it this way. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Note, Paul's not rejecting physical fitness. It, it has some value. But what is necessary, what is indispensable, is godliness, that is spiritual fitness. It has value in every way for this life and then for all eternity. Timothy is to train himself in this discipline of godliness. Now, the word train that you find in the, your English translation is the Greek word that gives us the words gymnasium and gymnastics. Uh, the word itself means to exercise. It's a reminder to Timothy that godliness does not just happen to him, just like physical fitness doesn't just happen to you. You have to exercise. You have to have a training regimen. But further, it can never stop. You can't stay physically fit if you stop physically training. A shepherd teacher can never think that he has trained himself enough so that he can actually stop his training in godliness. A shepherd teacher must understand that training days are never, ever over. Do you know the term perishable skills? Uh, it's a term that's um, connected to elite military and hostage rescue teams of law enforcement. It's used in other contexts, but it's especially used among those who are military and paramilitary to describe a certain character of skills which they possess. They are skills that must be practiced 
constantly because they degrade quickly. And one example of this would be their use of firearms, their accuracy in shooting. That skill degrades quickly. Godliness needs to be seen this way. Last week's spiritual exercises and spiritual disciplines do not keep you where you need to be for the spiritual demands of this week or the weeks to come. Shepherd teachers must train for godliness and stay in a regimen of training. Now the second set of do's and don'ts, verse 12, uh, Timothy is told, don't be despised because you are young. Quoting Paul, let no one despise you for your youth. And now I'll explain what Paul meant to Timothy. And in doing so, I don't want to spend any time on how 10,000 youth pastors have taught hundreds of thousands of youth group kids something that actually twists this scripture out of its context and distorts its meaning. Because you see, Timothy was not a teenager. This term youth could actually be applied to someone up to the age of 40 under certain circumstances. Timothy was a full-grown adult. All the evidence points to the fact that he was most likely in his early 30s, still young compared to some within the congregation. The way Timothy was to keep people from despising or disrespecting him was not to demand respect or honor. Rather, it was this. Don't let anyone despise you by never giving them anything to despise. That's the point of the rest of verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, how to be the man people won't despise regardless of your age. Be the man that can set the example in Christian virtue. In verse 12, the second half, Paul writes, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Instead of giving people a reason to despise you, give people reason and motivation to respect and follow you. Now, just about every good manual on leadership will tell you that personal conduct that is tightly coupled to a high moral code is the most consistent generator of respect among others. That's what Paul's calling for. He's saying to Timothy, set your personal conduct according to the highest moral code so that you'll be the right example in your speech and in your behavior, in your love and in your faithfulness and loyalty, in your purity. In other words, set your heart and set your aim on having the highest moral integrity. Be a certain way, Timothy. Live a godly way. Live the godly way, talk the godly way, because this is who you really are supposed to be. And if you are this and live this, you will not be despised, even though you are young. And then the third set of do's and don'ts we find in verses 13 and 14. Paul first speaks in verse 13 to the positive duty. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, when Paul says until I come, he's, he's still expressing the hope, the hope that he will still yet get to visit Ephesus. And he tells Timothy, 
keep up with this. Devote yourself to this public ministry until I come. Now, not meaning that when Paul gets there, Timothy would be able to stop, but that in the absence of Paul's presence and help, this public ministry is of such first importance that it must be Timothy's primary devotion and duty. Now, the public ministry that's described here was, in fact, no new thing with respect to the uh, tradition of how the Jews themselves conducted their synagogue teaching. The practices we see here described, Paul of Timothy, go all the way back at least five centuries. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, in chapter 8, verse 8, we can read these words. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, this states what Timothy's supposed to do. He's to be devoted to the public ministry of the word. He's to read it to the congregation. He's to teach and to explain it. And then he's to exhort the people to believe it and to obey it. That actually sets forth three steps that form the primary backbone of the biblical ministry of the word. That is to say, the first step is always to read the word that you're going to speak from. Read it in such a way that you're actually saying what the text says. Now, that often involves consulting the original. It certainly involves consulting various translations to see the ranges of definition and meaning that the best translators can bring to the word of the text itself. But it's the point of reading the word in a manner that's clear so people can clearly hear what the text actually says. But then the second step is to go on and explain the meaning of the text. There is what the text says, but then there is what the text actually means in terms of the very sense of the text. And what the text actually means involves implications of the text. And what we call that, biblical scholars call it, exposition. This is what it means to expound the text of the Word of God. But the third step that Paul mentions here to Timothy is exhortation, which involves the step of application. It's calling on believers to believe the Word of God and to trust the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. Sometimes exhortation comes in the form of a command. Sometimes it comes in the form of an appeal. Sometimes it is an encouragement. But the point of exhortation is always this, to trust and to obey. Now, everything that Timothy was to be and everything Timothy was to do was for this most significant part of a shepherd teaching calling. It's for the sake of the public ministry of the word of God. Then to support that primary duty, Paul tells Timothy what he must not do. And this is in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have. Do not neglect your spiritual gift. Don't neglect the spiritual gift that was given you by prophecy when the elders laid their hands upon you and ordained you. What Paul was saying to Timothy is, is something important exists between uh, the calling to be a shepherd, to calling to be a shepherd teacher, and then the way the Holy Spirit is going to give that man his primary spiritual giftedness. That is to say, the two are to coincide. They are going to fit together. Timothy's spiritual gift is that endowment from the Holy Spirit that is going to give him the spiritual ability to study the Word of God and then to teach the Word of God and then to exhort from the Word of God and thereby 
edify and equip the saints to live their Christian lives. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is Christ designed for the church. So don't neglect your spiritual gift. Now, why would Timothy need to be reminded of this? Here's why. When working with people, you can easily be scattered in hundreds of different ways. It's just the way we are as people. But it means we can find ourselves sidetracked from doing the main thing. And when pastors get sidetracked from doing the main thing, that's the devil's strategy. I've known preachers who are always finding themselves doing their sermons at the end of the week at the last minute, the last amount of time they would have before a Sunday morning. And they would say, I just have so many people demands during the week. Now, now Paul is concerned that Timothy might neglect the very gift that the Spirit had given him to do his primary work, which was to feed the people of God with the voice of Christ with the truth. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy uh, against the fact that valid people concerns, they're valid, they're real, but they can also get you sidetracked from your primary duty. Your greatest help to the people of God is through the word of God. You must study, prepare, be ready to teach and preach the word of God. So Paul is saying, do not neglect anything that is necessary for the public teaching and the public preaching of the word of God. Don't neglect the spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has given to you. Find the balance between all of the ministries that involve loving the people of God and all of the time necessary in order to love the word of God so you can be a faithful shepherd to the people of God. Now, finally, I want to come to a final thought about the shepherd teacher's calling, sort of summary thoughts with respect to the mission and ministry of the shepherd teacher. Now, we've seen that Paul says to Timothy that his mission and his ministry is wrapped up in servanthood, service on behalf of the one hope in Christ, service that is to be done in total commitment, where Timothy must never be wasting his time. Uh, rather, he must be focused on always progressing in godliness and spirituality. He must always be using his spiritual gift in public ministry, always guarding his life and his doctrine closely to protect himself and his people from falling away. What is common to all of this is that underlying theme, shepherding the church is very serious business. And those who are called must take this task seriously. Because again, the context in which shepherd teachers are to give their lives is that Christ has called the church to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So in this regard, Timothy had only looked to look to the Apostle Paul to see all of this lived out with total integrity and exceptional diligence. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, we see one of the very best summary statements for any man who would be a shepherd teacher. It is Paul's consummate statement of purpose with respect to his mission and ministry as a shepherd teacher. He says, but I, I do not account my life of any value as precious to me. In other words, 
I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish my course, which means the course of his life and mission, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul reckons the value of his life to be wrapped up in the mission and ministry of the gospel of God's grace. This is his purpose in life. This is his calling from God. This is what Paul imparts to Timothy. This is what Christ has given to all who would be shepherd teachers. And it's all because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Therefore, all who would be shepherd teachers must pursue this calling with exceptional diligence. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, today we would consider this passage and we would pray for all men today who are shepherd teachers, uh, elders of their congregations, that you would give them every grace needed for them to pursue their calling and purpose with excellence, faithfulness, and diligence. Give them all grace, Lord. And give to your churches, your true churches, men who are faithful in this way, men who love your word, men who love them, men who know that our greatest good is to know you in Jesus Christ and to live by the gospel. And they would watch their lives and doctrine closely to that end, so that by persisting in all of these ways of teaching the truth of your word, they would faithfully shepherd your people that your people might never fall away. Lord, we ask this for our own church here in every way, both for now and for the future. Oh, Lord God, keep us in the grace of the gospel. Keep us teaching faithfully. Keep us walking close to the word of God in all ways. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.